Hey, Film Files, welcome back to the show. If this is your first time tuning into our program, we are a couple of guys from Illinois who are just absolutely in love with movies, both big and small. Every episode, we find a movie, new or old, that has uh, left some sort of uh, impact on pop culture and just, just stands the test of time, we think. Today, we thought we would capitalize on um, a new release that's coming out. The Matrix Resurrection comes out on December 22nd. So I thought it would be a good idea to talk about The Matrix. I had to go back and look at our back catalog because I can't believe that we had never uh, picked this movie before. But we hadn't. And so to help me deal with everything incorporated with The Matrix and the inevitable sequels, I found one of our favorite friends, Ben Snowden. Welcome back. Yeah, what Jimmy lucked out there is uh, he was up there in Chicagoland and he heard a familiar voice by the dumpster. And he's like, that sounds like a familiar voice. And, you know, I was just drinking hobo wine by the dumpster. I was like, hey, man, let's do something. He's like, yeah, the Matrix. <laughs> and then we put on our cool sunglasses and just flew into this guy like Superman. I thought that might be you. And at any rate, I'm Jimmy Malone and this is Movie Show Theater. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What do you want? You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around and pull it down. What's your favorite scary movie? Have you ever seen a grown man naked? All right, well, I hadn't watched The Matrix in, I don't know, probably like eight years. All three movies are streaming on HBO Max. And before I say too much, I want to hear uh, about Ben's experience with the rewatch. The movie came out in 1999. It was directed by, uh, at the time, Larry and Andy Wachowski, now Lana and Lily Wachowski. And it came out in 99, which is kind of argued to be one of the best years of movies. Some of the other things that came out in 99 were Fight Club, Sixth Sense, American Beauty, American Pie, Sleepy Hollow, The Mummy, Eyes Wide Shut, Blair Witch Project, 10 Things I Hate About You, Office Space, Toy Story, Dogma, Magnolia, and Ben's favorite, Bowfinger. You know it. This was just a very seminal period in my life, 1999. So just saying The Matrix just inspires uh, just a, a floodgate of memories. So I was really happy to go back and uh, rewatch this movie. And was it as good as I remembered? Well, I want to hear Ben's take first, so I'll let Ben talk. So it's it's kind of a yes and no for the original Matrix because I'm in the same time frame when it comes to that nostalgia because I was in my first year of being a teenager, so I think, you know, I I see the preview, the trailer on TV, which would have been TV at the time, not the internet, because it took too long to download videos. But it's just, wow, they have this bumping metal music in the background, and there are the flashy sunglasses and action and sci-fi, and I'm like, huh, I feel some kind of way about Carrie Ann Moss. I'm not exactly sure how I feel, but it's something. (laughs) But um, The Matrix at the time was a cross-section of almost everything I liked. So viewing it as an adult, I was in the same boat of, is this going to hold up well? I still had a lot of fun with the original, but then realized that some of it is a little bit clunky, but it's not the end of the world. And then the the part that got me was the long stretch kind of toward the, the start where mostly Morpheus is explaining and explaining and explaining what the Matrix is and it's kind of like that combination exposition slash training montage so i was like um i remember that being a little bit better in my younger days but i think too just skimming the imdb trivia that that's that part seemed to be a compromise because the studio when they were reading the script it seems like they said to the wachowskis hey people aren't going to get this you need to like over explain what the matrix is Yeah, they certainly did that. I went full nostalgia on this one. I was 15 when this movie came out, and I wasn't allowed to see it in the theater. 
but my parents did eventually let me buy the VHS because the it's a very violent movie, but there's not a lot of blood and there's not a ton of swearing. And so it passed the parent test. So going back and watching it, I absolutely loved it. One of the first things that I noticed was um, the writing and some of the, like the opening lines of the dialogue. I guess I should say my intent for this little ranting session with me and Ben is to convince anybody who's listening that it's time for a rewatch and brush up before the new one comes out. So the beginning of the movie, you haven't heard you haven't heard anybody or seen anything, and it's just a phone call between two characters who you haven't met. And Trinity says, is everything in place? Cypher says, you aren't supposed to relieve me. Trinity says, I felt like taking a shift. Cypher says, you like him, don't you? You like watching him. Trinity says, don't be ridiculous. Cypher says, we're going to kill him. You understand that. Trinity says... Morpheus believes he is the one. Cypher says, do you? Trinity says, it doesn't matter what I believe. Cypher says, you don't, do you? Trinity says, you hear that? You sure this line is secure? Cypher says, of course I'm sure. And that little opening dialogue basically tells the entire story of the movie, which I think is really interesting. And it like touches on, you know, that there's, this is going to be a, a the one hero's journey and there's going to be some romance there's going to be some uh, skepticism. Cypher says in the beginning of the movie, we're going to kill him. You understand that? And uh, I don't know. It just it says a lot of things about each character, and it kind of sets up the story really well. And don't forget about the, the falling letters slash characters. The, the code, so to speak, the green, the green code. Yeah, that's like the, my favorite piece of movie trivia. You want to say what that is? It's mostly Japanese characters, right? Yeah, it's supposedly one of the writer's mom's sushi recipes. <laughs> it's in all Japanese. I need to go back to see if that's a good recipe. If it's as delicious as this movie, it's going to be very tasty. Yes. The thing that when I was reading about this movie that was so interesting is that, I mean, I've seen movies that have, in my opinion, better casting choices. I mean, there's some doubt on whether or not this very green, scrawny, confused surfer boy could possibly be the one. I read that in the first 45 minutes of the movie, Keanu Reeves has 80 lines, which is not many, and 44 of those lines are questions. But with casting, and I'm, I'm sure you read this too, but some of the people that were offered and turned down totally blew my mind. So like David Schwimmer was a front runner for the role of Neo, which I'm just picturing awkward fight scenes with David Schwimmer and it's just not working for me. Yeah. You would think that he's going to get hit once and start whining about it. Yeah, exactly. Brad Pitt turned down the role because he didn't believe the role was his. I agree. It would not have worked very well. There's of course the story that I used to tell my wife every month and she still makes fun of me for it, that Will Smith turned down this role to film Wild Wild West. But there's a, a really funny YouTube video of Will Smith telling the story. And apparently the Wachowskis, they had only done one other movie uh, at this point, And it was a, I thought it was a terrible movie called Bound. It was almost like, it was almost softcore porn. It was Jennifer Tilly and I know Joey Pant. Joey Pantaleona was in it. I can't remember really the plot, except there were boobs in it. And I was like 16 watching the movie and... So at least that, at least in that, in that point in time, it was awesome. Maybe not so much yeah, today. Yeah, come to think of it, it was the greatest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> but he's explaining, he's explaining that the Wachowskis basically pitched the opening scene to Will Smith. You know, you think of an elevator pitch, you get like 45 seconds. And in 19, they probably started filming it in like 97. In 97, Will Smith was like, you know, skyrocketed to another plane of existence with his stardom and so these two like brand new filmmakers come up and they just pitch the opening scene which if you explain to somebody how you know they come in to arrest this girl and then she spins around and then she runs on the wall and she kicks him and she kicks a chair into the sky i mean it sounds like a 15 year old explaining some action scene he would do with his batman figures yeah and it's funny too because 
if you watch The Matrix and think about anime or read about the background and how the Wachowskis were heavily inspired by anime, it just sounds like what happened was Will Smith was bombarded by anime nerds and was like, uh, no, there's a bigger paycheck over here. Sorry, I'm Will Smith. Oh, 100%. But I, I don't blame him one bit. No, also on paper, Wild Wild West, I mean, that should have been a home run. That movie, the plot... Well, the, I guess they really lost it at the plot. <laughs> like, it's a great idea for a story. I mean, it's basically like Men in Black, but in 1885. Yeah, and it was uh, it was that point in time where Will Smith, in every movie he was in, was just a different version of Will Smith. Kind of what Dwayne The Rock Johnson is doing now and making tons of money. So it's one of those deals where you don't really blame him. And you probably think... If he had been cast as Neo, that it might have been the same thing happening with The Matrix. And it would be a completely different film because he would just be Will Smith as Neo and would do kind of his regular winking at the camera shtick. Which I think it it makes sense that with Keanu Reeves... And people saying, oh, he's just, you know, so wooden and dull. I like Keanu Reeves. I think in this role, it kind of makes sense for his acting ability because most of the time he's supposed to be confused as hell. When people say he looks like he doesn't know what's going on in other films, maybe it's, uh, you know, something that's supposed to burn him a little bit. In this film, he's not really supposed to get any kind of confidence with what's going on until maybe like the late middle or complete end. Like w- when they break out Morpheus is when he really like shines. Yup. Um, this, w- this is also really telling of the times. Both David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson turned down the roles of Neo and Trinity. That would have been a very interesting, almost alternate universe. Right, because... For the X-Files. Yeah, they both turned it down to do X-Files, which, yeah, y- they should have done that. Uh, DiCaprio turned it down. Um, Russell Crowe turned down the role of Morpheus. Uh, one of the ones that I think would have been really interesting, <laughs> Christopher Maloney auditioned for the role of Agent Smith. Yeah. Which I'm I'm here for that. Another one I read was the potential, I think, for Gary Oldman to be Morpheus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'd sign off on that. I think it worked out well with who they eventually landed because... Going back to, you know, the the first viewing of this, it's hard to ever think about what you were thinking or feeling when you were first watching this. Mm -hmm. But I remember going way back to my first watch because I think maybe I I rented the the VHS or yeah, it would have been VHS, I think, at that time. I didn't know whether Morpheus was on the side of good or on the side of evil because and a lot of it I think was intentional because the Wachowskis wanted to play up like almost a PK Dick sense of paranoia, yeah. right? They didn't want to let you know exactly what was going on, even though the studio forced them to explain way too much. Even after all the explanations with the way Lawrence Fishburne delivers his lines, you think, man, this movie could end with him just killing Neo and being like, sorry, because his morality, whatever you want to call it, is very ambiguous until, you know, maybe that scene where he's being, uh, oh, I know what it is. So there's the glitch in the Matrix, and they're trying to get out of the building, and then Morpheus launches himself through the wall to fight an agent and the minions, and he kind of sacrifices himself for Neo, and you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure he's. there's not going to be some plot twist where he does this turn because that wouldn't make any sense. But up till then, you don't really know if he's good or evil, which I like that ambiguity. Yeah, I like that too. And I think maybe, if anything, he was a little more ominous than he should have been. And watching it now, he's like just really chewing it up. I mean, he is like really enjoying the role of Morpheus, which is good. I mean, he's, you know, he's great. He really nails the role, but... The the cast was something else that I noticed with this rewatch. In 1999, some of the other big movies were Boondock Saints, Mystery Men, Payback, Three Kings, The World Is Not Enough. And this movie casts Marcus Chong, the guy that played Tank, who's African-Chinese, Julian Aragana, who played Apoc, who's New Zealand-Estonian, 
Anthony Ray Parker, who played Dozer, who's African-American from New Zealand, and then Belinda McClory, who played Switch, who was actually written to be gender fluid so that she would present as a woman when in the Matrix, but present as a man when in the real world. And that's a really interesting layer of inclusivity that we don't even get now. And it's also interesting, too, considering just just that one bit, right? So going back to Switch, like Switch could have been two androgynous actors, one male, one female. And this entire film is about the fabric of reality and questioning it. And you can say, oh, well, it's like a, a cyberpunk remake of the allegory of the cave. But when you look at it through the lens of the people writing the movie eventually came out as trans, like, oh, there is another layer if you wanted to look at it like that. Not that I'm saying that that's exactly the interpretation that I would have ever had um, if they had not come out as trans, but it's kind of an interesting development when you look at the movie through the lens of, hey, the people people who wrote this came out as, as trans, and there's a whole lot about identity and reality and the perception, and the world's just kind of a screen, you know, or you're living in reality, and it's kind of a simulation, but there are so many people buying into it that they'll never get out of it. I know there's probably something out there. Like if you did a quick Google search, there's probably like a 3000 word article about how the matrix is really an extended metaphor for coming out in some way. But it's like, actually that kind of makes sense. You can view the movie like that in a way. Yeah, no, I think for sure there's a component there. It, it must have been a very personal story. I mean, obviously it was because the other movies that the Wachowskis have done are... Did you ever see Cloud Atlas? Yeah. It's an interesting one. It's not, a, it's not for everybody. I'll say that. What was the other one? Oh, Speed Racer. But I, but I think of all of those, this seems like it would be the one with the most personal sentiment to it. And so I think that they had a character that was written to be transgender in this sense. And then for the filmmakers to present as transgender, I mean, there's some obvious components there that can't be coincidence. Yeah. And with this film too, it seems like they approached this as this is our thing, right? So they obviously had to make some compromises, but they had been working on this for about forever before it finally got the green light. So you have to think that there's a really deep personal attachment to the final product, even if <laughs> comparing the the original Matrix to the sequels, which can't speak for the newest one because it hasn't been released. But compared to the other two Matrix films, the original, while it does have its serious moments, doesn't take itself as seriously. 100%. Because... There, there are moments of, of light humor at the very least sprinkled throughout, like when Agent Smith and the other agents are interrogating Anderson slash Neo, and he's just like going through what they know, and one of the things they know is that he helped the landlady take the garbage out. Yeah, there's some moments of levity for sure. And like the whole character of Mouse, he was such a sweet character that was like, you knew he was going to die because he didn't really add much to the story, and he just seemed... He just came off as extremely expendable. Yeah, it's like that since you get it if you've watched enough horror, and it's like, wow, this character's really nice. Yeah, he's gonna die. He is really sweet and also adds nothing to the story, and we would be fine without him, so... Here's here's another one for the body count. So I guess we should probably touch on the sequels, because... So I saw the trailer for the new one, and I knew that it was coming for like six months, and I knew that only Lana Wachowski is involved with the project. And I guess when they were pitching The Matrix as a fully ready-to-shoot screenplay, they had only written a movie called Assassins with uh, Stallone and Banderas. They hadn't directed this that movie Bound that I was talking about. The studio made them go direct a movie just to show that they could. And so the studio ended up giving them... $10 million, and they used that entire budget to make the first scene, like, cut, print, ready to put in theaters, and they showed that to the studio, and they're like, okay, here's $63 million. So I remember the sequels being really bad, and I remember them being flops. 
So I did watch part of the Matrix Reloaded um, because I had very little recollection of it. And the other weird thing is that this movie, The Matrix, was released in 99. Matrix Reloaded was released in 2003. And then Matrix Revolution was released six months later. So I was just in a totally different headspace between 15 and 18. Those are like two completely different places in your life. So The Matrix, the budget was $63 million, and it grossed $463 million. So Matrix Reloaded budget was $135 million, so they got a lot more, and their gross was $739 million. So holy shit, that was not a bomb. That movie did very well. They made some bark. Yes, and The Matrix Revolution, the budget was the exact same, $135 million. And it grossed $427 million. So not as good. But what a weird studio decision to wait four years to release the sequel. That's crazy. Yeah. And going back to the light humor, the levity that was sprinkled throughout the original Matrix, you get to the sequels and you feel like they've bought into the hype of the Matrix from the standpoint of wow, people watch this and say it's the deepest, most philosophical film they've ever seen. Oh my God, yes. They doubled down on the the symbolism. Yeah. And when I was watching The Matrix Reloaded, and I didn't recently get back to uh, Revelations, sorry everyone, I was like, wow, what happened was the same thing that happened to the Star Wars prequels where they had these scenes where, uh, you know, you had the Senate or these councils sitting around talking about things no one cares about. It's like, do you want to write a town hall scene in a cyberpunk dystopian sci-fi film that's also known for its action? Or do you want to have a cyberpunk dystopian sci-fi film that actually has action? And that's the thing that's disappointing, especially with Reloaded. There are some fantastic action sequences, especially that uh, interstate scene and the disappointing part is it doesn't really feel like it means anything because the movie's bloated and a lot of scenes with uh here's this key maker guy here's this architect guy who pops up and just spouts a bunch of verbal diarrhea that no one understands it's like what is this like what is this supposed to even I mean i don't understand I it's like a matrix fanboy circle jerk yeah well that actually that's perfect because with some of the stuff that popped up in the sequels it does feel like bad fan fiction like someone wanted to explain the matrix in more detail and then they did and a lot of times that just ends up biting the film in the ass because one thing even though i i mentioned earlier that in the first matrix they over explained a little bit there is still a lot of stuff about the world that you didn't know and left you wondering so it's like that Ernest Hemingway tip of the iceberg philosophy where if you have a story, you just show the tip of the iceberg in a way that makes the reader wonder about, you know, what's underneath the surface of these waters. So the sequels went underneath the waters and they're just like, oh yeah, here's everything. And it's just like, oh, the, the aura's gone. Yeah. Oh, they're like completely different movies. I think something that I really liked about the first one is that the scale and the general scope of the movie, even though it it took place, you know, in this fabricated reality, this like cage for humanity, most of it took place in the world that we know, on streets that we know. You know, there's a bunch of references to Chicago. There's like six different streets that are either shown or mentioned that are famous streets in Chicago, like Wabash and Lake, There's a subway station, and the destination of that subway station is a famous Chicago L station. But then there's other ones that are like New York locate. It's just supposed to be like, you know, metropolitan area USA. But it seems like it's, it was a world that I recognized as a 15 year old. You know, you're in like an office building and walking down the streets, and I'm like, ooh, I, I can relate to that. I understand that. These are places that I kind of know. And then the second one, it's just like nothing is recognizable. It's all like new new worlds, new landscapes. 
nothing that I had ever seen before, which apparently a lot of people liked because as I was mistaken, this movie did very, very well. But it was it's exactly like you said. It took it it took itself so seriously. And the Neo flying, I could just never get behind. No. And part of it too, it's funny how the movie references him doing his Superman thing because the most interesting Superman stories are the ones where he's vulnerable and gets his ass kicked because you're like, hey, is he going to die this time? Is he actually going to face adversity this time and not have the sun power him up and he's just going to bulldoze through all the enemies? So in the first Matrix, yeah, Neo has tons of vulnerability up until the end because you kind of do wonder if he's going to live or die. But by the second one is just like, oh, he's fighting tons of agents, which by the way, uh, early 2000s <laughs> CGI, you probably knew I was going to go there, but the scene where Neo just finished talking to the Oracle. So here comes Agent Smith, who has somehow been liberated. He's been infecting other people in the Matrix and essentially replicating himself. So for no apparent reason this fight scene switches between live action and like PlayStation 2 CGI. And it is so incredibly jarring. And you wonder who made the decision to do that because they didn't need to do that. Like the live action parts were incredible, but when it switches to the CGI, it might as well be like uh, Mickey Mouse animations, like Steamboat Willie, (laughs) because it's the exact same thing. It is Steamboat Willie. Yeah, it's not necessary, and it doesn't look good. I mean, and it came from, you know, when the first one came out, I mean, it just had mystery and intrigue. I mean, even when the movie was halfway over, you still didn't know what the hell was going on. You still don't know if he's the one. You still don't really know what the idea is, and I really like that. I mean, I was old enough to appreciate show, don't tell. And I just thought, like, the training sequences, the fact that... They could upload a program into his mainframe and and Trinity would just know how to fly a helicopter. I mean, all that just worked so well for me. And, you know, I mentioned some of the other movies that came out in 1999. I had never, we had never seen anything like that before. Like from special effects, you know, they were nominated for, I think, four Academy Awards that year and they won every single one. And the way that they told the story and the way that they withheld certain information and, you know, the special effects that, A lot of them were done practically. Everything was just so new and it just blew my mind for two straight hours. But then flash forward to four years later when the second one comes out, we've already seen all three Lord of the Rings movies. We've seen Underworld. We've been introduced to like all of these new concepts in like storytelling and science fiction and fantasy. And I just remember thinking like, I don't really need the Matrix anymore. I've outgrown it. And I had no, I mean, I remember seeing it, but I remember the sex scene being pretty good. It's funny how my brain has a tendency to remember the sex <laughs> scenes, but it's like, to me, it was irrelevant. It's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> uh, it's a tough pill to swallow after the original because I'm in the same boat and there, there really wasn't a whole lot of intrigue left after bigger film franchises came along and did some of the same things or different things better. So the sequel, when it kind of whiffed on the the things the original had done better, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'm surprised that you haven't mentioned this already. One point to The Matrix is the bomb-ass soundtrack. I was going to mention that because I want to say there's what? There's like Rob Zombie... Dragula, yeah, there was uh, Deftones, My Own Summer, yeah, and then they had like Propeller Heads was yeah, in there so somewhere, meet, so like meet, a mix of like, kind of like a mix of electronic and some hard rock and metal, very much a sign of the times. Oh yeah, yeah, the music is very dated, but I don't remember a lot of movies where the soundtrack, I mean, science fiction especially, you know, like sometimes people watch science fiction movies and they want to be taken far away to a land where nothing is familiar, like Star Wars. And then some people want uh, a movie, you know, where they can relate to the characters and it takes place partially in a landscape that they know. And, and then they get whisked away to like a new place, like, say, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. And it's interesting how the, the Matrix 
does a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Another one that is kind of like it takes place partially in a world we recognize and partially not. And it's a, a theory that the red pill is a nod to Total Recall from 1990. It better be. Uh, right. Because Arnold's character, Douglas Quaid, is given a red pill which when he swallows will allow him to leave the secret agent on Mars fantasy and return to reality and wake up in the real world. <laughs> Everything better be a reference to Total Recall. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that's one of those things I've never heard or read, and I do hope that it is true because I love the original, original Total Recall. What's interesting too, if I'm remembering right, so we haven't had a Matrix episode until now, but we've visited kind of the, you could call it the constellation of Matrix movies because like we did, because we did what you might call a precursor to the Matrix called Dark City. Yes, I'm glad you. And then that I remember up. in that episode, I think you had brought up that uh, the Matrix used sets from Dark City and. Both movies have very similar themes. Dark City, I would argue, is much darker because, I mean, the opening scene is a dude wakes up and there's a disfigured prostitute that's dead in the other room. Uh, but it's both movies are very much a, hey, what is reality kind of deal. And then, did we do an episode for Equilibrium as well? No, but Equilibrium is very similar, as is Existence. Yeah, but equilibrium. E equilibrium is a much better comparison that you made. I like that one better because equilibrium is like it takes part of what the Matrix does because that came down the pipeline like three years after the Matrix. But it's more like if you married the Matrix with 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. So of course I was all over it. But it is really interesting yeah, yeah. with movies that probably just got greenlit that had been sitting around because of the Matrix and then. Back in the era of spoof films, the first time Bullet Time was spoofed, it was funny. But the 3,000 times after that, it was not funny. Oh, my God. When they did it in Shrek, you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, the Bullet Time was pretty spectacular. Apparently, there was a controversy where Michel Gondry started using a technique like this in some of his music videos. But it was just with still images just with a st uh, static subject that the camera would move around. But this was really the first time that we had seen... I mean, I guess the, the, bullet, the bullet time, that was like the big one. That was the big showstopper effect of the movie. Everything else, you know, we had seen before, but at least for me, I just hadn't seen it done that well. And even going back and looking at it now, it still looks really good. Some of the effects might not have been necessary, but if you just look at them out of context, they look really, really good. And I don't know if this is part of it, but there was a lot of practical effects that they kept. Like the scene where the helicopter explodes on the building and the windows make some sort of like ripple effect. I just assumed that even in 99, it would just all be done digitally because they, they filmed it in Sydney, I guess, because it's a lot cheaper to film in Sydney. So the ripple effect in the latter scene was created digitally. But the shot also included practical effects and months of extensive research were needed to find the correct kind of glass and explosives to use. So the scene was shot by colliding a quarter-scale helicopter mock-up into a glass wall wired to concentric rings of explosives. The explosives were then triggered in sequence from the center outward to create a wave of exploding glass. And that's the kind of shit that I appreciate that... I remember thinking that that was a really cool effect. And I don't think all explosions are equal, but a lot of them, I mean, an explosion is an explosion, you know, basically. I mean, the scale is varies from movie to movie, but that was one explosion that always stuck in my mind of like, I have never seen that done quite like that before. Yeah, because up to that point, my frame of reference was more like uh, bad action movies and a car or building explodes while the protagonist is walking away. So, you know, slow motion, being propelled, slash jumping away from the explosion with eyes covered, something along those lines. 
and really zoomed out away from the explosion. There's just something about the angle and then that rippling effect that makes it so different. And Mm -hmm. it almost, it, it, it makes sense with the, the world itself too, because throwing it back to when I was first watching, I was wondering if that was part of like a glitch in the matrix it just looks yeah, so it's odd so unnatural yeah yeah i remember i remember that i just always remember that explosion i also really like this is i guess like a, a storytelling component but when they visit the oracle which i always thought was a fun scene not the kid with the bending spoon i thought that was fucking stupid but uh, when they visit the oracle and she tells there's all this build-up and at this point you are 100% sure that he is the one because we've been told this 50 times. Morpheus loves to say that he's the one. He's the chosen one. I know he's the one. And so when the Oracle says, you're not the one, you're kind of like more disappointed than Keanu Reeves is. And of course, he was the one, as we would later find out. But apparently, that was kind of a source of contention for some people who thought that it was a really cheap move for this character to tell the audience, no, he's not the one. And then at the end be like, no, just kidding. He is. He's totally the one. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I do love the Oracle too, because it's not what you expect. What you expect is probably some kind of priestess in long flowing robes. And she's on an altar with, you know, incense and candles around her. And instead, it looks yeah, like at uh, least some patent leather. Yeah, and instead, of what you get is he just goes into an apartment kitchen, and it looks like someone's sweet grandma baking some cookies. <laughs> and that's literally what she is. But I think the reason I am okay with the Oracle saying you're not the one is just like, well, it's just part of the hero's journey. So we could throw out other references, Harry Potter. Uh, Luke Skywalker, you know, at a certain point, if there was a character like the Oracle in any of those films who would just randomly show up, like, what say it's the Oracle, she'd probably say the same thing to them at the early portions of their hero's journey. She was just saying, you're not the one yet, because it's true. He had to go through some changes to become the one. The only way I can think to say it is he had to go through some shit, prove some shit <laughs> to prove that he's the one. So in reality, yeah, that guy who was standing in her apartment because he had doubt and didn't necessarily know himself and didn't believe, I buy it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I hundred percent buy it. I think it could also be argued that if you really got nitty and gritty into the story that for the ending to happen, he needed to believe that he wasn't the one. So, you know, a cookie is computer for piece of information. So she gave him a metaphorical cookie and a physical cookie as well, which was a very nice touch. And another thing, too, is depending on your interpretation of the story, you know, rebirth is a part of so many arcs in religion, spirituality, whatever you want to call it. So there's the scene near the end where, you know, Neo is trying to get out of the Matrix, get back to Nebuchadnezzar, and Agent Smith pumps him full of bullets. And I don't think the the movie ever necessarily answers whether Neo dies at that point, but he does come back from being filled full of bullets, so that could be another touch point where you're like, okay, that makes sense. He had to die in his current state before he could become the one. So there are a lot of things that go into it, and that's just one of them. Yeah, I also have no problem at all with the really cheesy kiss that like brings him back to life. I love uh, love stories in movies, and I don't know if that's just that part of me talking, but I didn't think it was like really, really sweet and magical and particularly touching. 
I wasn't like offended by it. There was a lot of people who who had a big problem. Science fiction and fantasy fans are very picky. I'm sure that you already know this. <laughs> yes, yeah, so- sometimes. Well, I shouldn't say sometimes. With with social media, and social media wasn't really a thing back then. It is now, but yeah, it's it's very toxic. Where it's like, hey, you also think about the part where. The Wachowskis had to get this greenlit by a studio, so there might have been some things that they changed to add a love story, because that seems to be a pretty common thing with movies like this. So if the love story is what it took, or one of the things it took to get this out into the world, sometimes you just gotta gotta go with it, even if you don't love it. It's just part of the the formula. Yeah, I actually... I'm hard-pressed to even think of a movie that doesn't have any sort of love story in it. I've thought about this before. I've spent maybe the better part of a few hours trying to think of a movie that has no love story. And, well, now that I say that, of course, I'm thinking of, like, Wizard of Oz. But the only, like, modern movie that I can think of was Boondock Saints. Yeah. Here's another thing, too, Back to going back to what we were talking about, how the first Matrix is probably superior to the sequels because of the tip of the iceberg theory, right? Like they don't exactly give away everything. So one thing I thought about in this most recent viewing is everyone else who was saved by Morpheus, how did they get to Morpheus? So you think with Trinity, could she have been living a similar lifestyle within the Matrix before she was woken up, so to speak. Like, maybe it's even down to she was also some kind of computer hacker, very 90s. Maybe her life resembled the one of Neo slash Anderson. So when they first discovered him and were, you know, started tailing him, so to speak, she just identified with him because she had been there before and... That's me filling in blanks, but that's a good thing when you do that because you start theorizing a little bit, and that's good on the film. <laughs> you can hear him, can't you? Yeah. No, Zelda does Zelda does the same thing. She'll get one of the toy fish, one of the toy birds, and she'll just walk around going, <laughs> Look what I found. Yeah, so we have a little bit of time left. I guess we should probably discuss the trailer for the new one because I was very excited when I finally saw it. Bring it up. I remember in the originals they had, when they were in The Matrix, the world had this like green tint to it. And I noticed that that wasn't in the new one and it kind of bothered me. I was surprised that it bothered me, but it did. And I had to do a little bit of uh, reading and apparently I wasn't the only one and people were kind of shitting on the trailer. They were like, this doesn't even feel like a Matrix movie. The green tint is gone. And then somebody pointed out, well, if you watch the Matrix Revolutions, at the end of the movie, they give people the freedom to leave this construct. They basically like open the door to the cage that we've all been living in. So the green tint shouldn't be there. So joke's on me. And part of it might just be growing up, but I... (laughs) (laughs) I'm already excited to hear what you're going to say. I would be okay with a Matrix film that was more grounded, that explored the psychological journey that Anderson slash Morpheus has gone through. Like, there's there's still the part of the trailer with some kung fu fighting, but sometimes a literal fight in a film can be symbolic of a metaphorical fight, right? So it looks like there's still some sci-fi going on, guns and jumping and stuff. But I'm really curious to see, with the imagery of the, the blue pills being in the drain, and even down to, you know... Neil Patrick Harris's character has blue glasses on, how they balance the fighting and the action with maybe a serious exploration of like, what is Anderson slash Neo even going through if he's in this this world that he feels might be separated from the Matrix? Like, the, like he said, the green tint's not there. He's in a point where he's just thinking, what is even going on here? And he's questioning yeah, what, even what more what's real. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I think that I don't know if it'll be a Men in Black 2 situation where Tommy Lee Jones lost his memory and then they had to uh, give him some crazy shit to be a part of and then it slowly came back to him. But I watched this um, 
It was a a very geeky breakdown of the trailer. It was a YouTube video, and I watched the entire thing. And it was basically a shot-for-shot interpretation, analysis, and theory on what this means. And there's a, a very quick clip of a bunch of men in suits sitting in a room on couches watching The Matrix on a big screen, which I'm totally down with. You know, it is one of those deals where <laughs> it it would make sense, maybe not for them to go in a complete crazy meta direction, but it would make sense for the Matrix film or films to exist within the Matrix world. Yes. Yeah, well, and, and part of what makes sense to me is, so you're thinking the Matrix is a computer program and... Part of this is the outcome of a war between humans and machines. And why that makes sense to me is that if the machines showed humans the matrix, that might make humans more likely to think, oh, that's not real. The matrix isn't real. My reality, my everyday is, is real. And this is just a film. So putting the matrix movie inside of the matrix so to speak for people to watch it's like oh these machines are kind of brilliant if that's what's going on yeah it's like some reverse psychology yeah i like it and i I, i'm interested to see if they explore that a little bit more like especially if part of it was (laughs) one of one of my favorite movies um is starring my very beloved Sam Neill and in the that mouth of is madness. in the mouth of madness. So, spoiler alert, you know this this movie that's been out since 1994, the ending of the film is he sits down and starts watching In the Mouth of Madness. So, if they want to go in a direction like that, even if people shit all over it, I am I'm so down. Glad. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I love In the Mouth of Madness. I mean, it's essential John Carpenter, written by Michael DeLuca, but directed by John Carpenter. So, it's a really interesting intersection of part Stephen King, definitely big Lovecraft influence. Oh, yes. But definitely like a meta narrative that you didn't see as much in the early to mid 90s, even though would that have been the era of, you know, like Last Action Hero? I can't remember when that one oh came my out. God, that was 94. So, same year. So, there were, I mean, there were some meta narratives out there. But it would be interesting to see if The Matrix could do something interesting with it. Because if handled right inside The Matrix, it could be absolutely great. And it might make people forget about (laughs) Reloaded and Revolutions. And I hope they do. Because, I mean, we got three Matrix movies. Nobody asked for a fourth one. Nobody needed a fourth one. So this is just like a bonus viewing. He's got two therapists in the trailer. He's got one at the beginning and one at the end, Neil Patrick Harris and Jonathan Groff, who if you haven't seen the show Mindhunters, your life has fallen short. Did you say Mind Mindhunters? Yes. I have not seen that. Oh, it is a... David Fincher created the whole show and it's basically like the origin story of police psychological profiling and interviewing serial killers. It's like a narrative uh, show. It's not like a documentary, but oh my God, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Uh, But anyway, yeah, the star of it is the dude that plays the therapist at the end of the Matrix trailer when he's like, we're going back to where it all started, the Matrix. I think that that is his therapist in the Matrix. And I think that Neil Patrick Harris is his therapist in the real world. I think that the Matrix movie is going to exist in the fourth Matrix movie. And I'm here for all of it. Well, part of it too is right going back to what the Wachowskis had to do to get the first Matrix movie, right? So they had to explain the Matrix more in the script. I don't feel like they beat anyone over the head with what the Matrix is. But you feel like maybe at this point... Was it just Lana who was involved with this one? Yeah. Maybe they, with the financial success of of 2 and 3, even if they weren't necessarily critical darlings, have more creative freedom to explore maybe what they even wanted to originally do with The Matrix that they couldn't do because the, the studio said no. Maybe Lana has more creative freedom to take it to places that are definitely weird and different. And I think... After what we've gone through the past couple of years, thanks COVID, I know I'm down for more weird and different 
and hopefully more people are too. Yes, well said. I will say in closing, because we're running out of time, I highly suggest that people rewatch this movie. I think there's probably going to be a lot of people that are watching The Matrix for the first time. The 2000s kids that have that never experienced that, that see this trailer, they're like, The Matrix, what the fuck is that? So I think they'll go back and experience this for the first time. And I think it will hold up because there's so many storytelling elements that I really appreciate. There's like hundreds of euphemisms and like little small details. There's a lot of Christian symbolism that is interesting, but it's not really worth going over here because I feel like... It's been done so many times. And there's so many more interesting things to talk about. Like the agent, Agent Smith, by the end of the movie, these agents, they don't really need any sort of extra story or character development. We know that they're trying to stop Neo and that's it. And they're obviously like Terminators, basically. And we don't really need anything else. But there's the scene where uh, Morpheus is being held hostage and Hugo Weaving, who... That's like the best casting choice of all time, I think, is Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith. He's so good. But he gives this really expertly delivered monologue about how he's so tired of the Matrix. He's sick of the smell. He's sick of the taste. And he can smell it in the air. And he needs to get the code to Zion so that he can destroy Zion so that he can get out of the Matrix. I just think that it's a really cool extra bit of storytelling that we didn't really need, but it really adds to his character because, you know, there's like three main agents and of course, Agent Smith has the most screen time. But aside from that, he's the only one that we know anything about. But I just thought that was a really cool example of storytelling. And I thought the whole movie was full of things like that. And unfortunately, the sequels leave a lasting impact on like the taste in my mouth when I watched the first one. So that affects it somehow. But I give this movie eight out of 10 trench coats. (laughs) I would give it at least 8.3 pairs of designer sunglasses. (laughs) Man, what are so many things that we didn't get a chance to talk about? The influences of this movie, Ghost in the Shell, I guess... Andy Wachowski went to Joel Silver, who is the producer, showed him Ghost in the Shell from 1995 and said, we want to do that for real. But there was like Akira. uh, They used they got the term The Matrix from William Gibson's um, Neuromancer, which I'm reading right now, which is such a good book. I need to read that one because I've read a few of his other books, but that one is known as his masterpiece. And it is that. Do you have anything, do you have any closing remarks on The Matrix? Yeah, I, even going off the, the anime comment, even down to if, if you've ever watched anime, not all of them do this, but a lot of them have this almost philosophical slant. Sometimes it does make you think a little bit deeper. Sometimes it just makes you think, ah, oh, this is faux philosophy or cotton candy philosophy. I know with the first Matrix, I didn't really care that much whether it was either of those. I feel like they got into the philosophical stuff just enough and that was pretty balanced with action and the plot and the special effects. And I know ultimately it just made me think a little bit more about reality and how a lot of times it's not necessarily outside forces that project it. It's you who makes reality. And I think that's part of the point of having a character like Anderson turn into Neo, you ultimately make your own reality, which I guess that's a pretty positive takeaway when you consider that (laughs) the real world within the first, I guess, all the Matrix movies is machines harvesting human bodies and then squeezing them into a liquid when they're expired, so to speak. So it's definitely still, I think, a fresh and interesting twist on uh, sci-fi and dystopia and it's worth watching again even if you you know happen to catch it when you still had cable tv and they ran it for five years straight on tnt just because i'm in the same boat as you jimmy where the sequels kind of soured me on the original but then when i went back and watched the original i thought wow this is still really good like there's some dialogue that's a little bit clunky and it's a little bit full of itself But it's not like the sequels where most of the movie is full of itself and trying to look important and it just ends up being pretentious. The first Matrix is just a lot of fun. 
Yes, the it's so much fun to watch. I had no fun at all watching the sequels. The whole aura was different. There was almost a lack of aura, you know, like no mystery, no figuring out the world yourself. There was no really exploration as the viewer. It was just more like, well, here's everything. Good luck getting through this. Oh, oh, we have some, well, we do have some twins who kind of dissolve and they're ghosts, but they're not ghosts and they have um, razor blades. Yeah. Yeah, there was no personality. That's what it was. The first one had so much personality to it, and the second ones were just like cold and sterile. Yeah, there was really no heart to it. And I think one thing that's very important is if you look at, you could call them the dystopian classics or the sci-fi greats that have that um, dystopian slant to them. Obviously, we've talked about Blade Runner a little bit. Even if it's very faint, there's a heartbeat there. You know, there's that human element there. And when you strip it of all of that, like you said, it just ends up being cold and sterile. And you wonder why you're even watching. Yeah, very true. Well, Ben Snowden, thanks for helping me figure out just what The Matrix is. The Matrix is what you make of it. And I'm going to talk about it for three straight hours (laughs) starting now. You can check out the rest of our podcasts at soundcloud.com slash movies show theater or anywhere that you get your podcast you can check out our facebook page you can reach out to us give us movie suggestions we'd love to talk about what you would like us to talk about so until next time i'm jimmy malone i'm ben snowden and you've been listening to movie show theater
is what you saw!